Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, would, would you take your Bible with me and turn to the Gospel of John this morning? John's Gospel, we made it to chapter 2. Uh, we are starting in chapter 2 this morning, verse 1. Um, I think we started in John in September. So it only took, I don't know how, you know how many months that is. It's too many to count. Too many months to count we took in John chapter 1, but I, um, I, I know that this is a, John chapter 1 in particular is a, a very dense a very dense chapter. So we're going to move a little more quickly through John's gospel now that we've made our way out of John chapter 1. We're in John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses for us. This is a familiar familiar story, a familiar uh, uh, encounter that Jesus has uh, in John chapter 2, beginning his earthly ministry. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful on the table back there. Feel free to stand up and go grab one. Uh, the black hardcover Bibles are for, for, for you to use while you are here. And if you do have one of those Bibles in front of you this morning, uh, you'll find the sermon text on page 1054. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and I will read through verse 12. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the, to, to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they did it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Kids, uh, have you had kids in here? Have you had a, a birthday party that was particularly memorable? For, for you. Um, we celebrated Abel's birthday last weekend, and uh, we had a Nerf war, which is very memorable. Um, but when I turned five, I had a memorable birthday party. It was my golden birthday, and, uh, and, and I had a, a Lego pirate birthday party. Uh, we, we had a treasure hunt, and we wore pirate costumes. It was incredibly memorable. I still remember a lot of the details from that day. And I got a giant Lego pirate ship that my boys still play with. Um, that was awesome. And I remember that day of celebration really, really well. Uh, and this morning, our text is about celebration. It's about celebration. And it's a wedding that Jesus attended with his, with his mom. And uh, maybe you've been to a wedding and it's, you have good memories of a wedding. If if uh, maybe an uncle or an aunt or a cousin or a friend got married, 
and you went with your parents and you ate good food and you, you, there was a lot of fun activities and, and there was cake and you danced. Maybe a wedding has a good memory for, for you. When we see Jesus going to a wedding in John chapter 2, though, we have to understand that weddings looked a little bit different than they do in our, our day and age. Uh, weddings in our time usually last several hours, maybe. The ceremony is maybe an hour max, and then there's a reception, and there's buildup, and then there's, there's the, the actual event itself. But the reality for weddings in Jesus' day is that they would last a whole week. It would last probably seven, seven days. That's a, that's a long time to celebrate a wedding, but they were community celebrations. Everyone in the town, Cana and Galilee in our text this morning, is a, is a town that would be, have been relatively small, and everyone would have known everyone, and so when Someone in the community would get married. They would all come together and they would all celebrate at the, at the same time because everyone knew each other. Uh, when Rebecca and I got married, uh, uh, we didn't know everyone at our wedding, which is kind of a weird admission. Um, we got some gifts from people, you remember this? Who we, <laughs> who, and we looked at the name and we said, who's that? And we said, I don't know. And then we asked our parents and they said, we don't know. And we said... Okay, well, I guess they're not getting a thank you. Um, that again, that's a weird thing to say, but but that would not have happened in the first in first century Palestine. Everyone would have known everyone, and everyone would have got a thank you note. Jesus and his mom and his brothers weren't from this town in particular. We know Jesus was from Nazareth, and so it's likely then that they were related to the the couple who was getting married in in Cana. And so they got an invite. One thing I think we should be struck by immediately, and this is kind of going to drive our time together, is that Jesus did things like go to weddings. Jesus did ordinary things like go, go to, to a wedding. Oftentimes we think about Jesus as wholly different from us. We think about him as, as being important, and he is. He's God. But here we see him do something that we normally would do. Go to, go to a wedding. But then we also see that Jesus at this ordinary event does something incredible. He does something out of the ordinary. He does something extraordinary. He turns water into wine. And John, the gospel writer, tells us that this is the first sign that Jesus does in, in, in the book. Uh, John opts for the sign, sign language here. He says the word sign, um, where as we might oftentimes think of what Jesus does here as a, a miracle. Um, in a lot of ways, they're similar. But the reason Jesus or John calls what Jesus does here a sign is to communicate the importance of the event. If you think about a sign, this is not different than maybe a road sign that tells you where to get off the interstate. Your exit is coming up. It's an important event while you're driving down the interstate to get off the, to get off the interstate. Jesus' signs that he performs indicate important events and truths that are becoming a reality. So this sign in this text, in verse 11, we're told, manifests his glory. 
this is what John says. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So Jesus didn't turn water into wine just to keep the party going. He actually was communicating something very specific, a glorious truth about who he is and what the moment represented. And the glorious truth being communicated is that the Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. The Christ has arrived. Jesus, the one who would deliver God's people, was present. In the Old Testament, upon the arrival of the Messiah, the Old Testament in several places tells us that there will be some markers. And one of the markers that comes up in the Old Testament on several occasions is the fact that the wine will flow freely. Consider Jeremiah 31.12. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. This is a portrait of what things will be like when the Messiah arrives. There will be abundance of grain and wine and oil, and the herds will be big and healthy. And their life shall be like a watered garden. It's not dried and and struggling. It's flourishing. In Amos chapter 9, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. Prior to the coming of the Messiah, the the things that we get in this life require hard work. And yet when the Messiah arrives, these things come freely. They flow freely. They flow freely. The Messiah is the one who God promised would deliver his people. And when this Messiah shows up, things are good. Things are good. The food is good. The drink is good. And life is had in abundance. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus will say as we move forward in the gospel that that Jesus came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is not exclusively future tense. This is part of our life in the here and now. It is the coming of Jesus into the world that marks the beginning of a time where abundant life can be had. Now, this might be not be fully realized until Jesus returns, but there are elements that we see here in this text that we can draw on in parallels in our own lives to understand better how we can live as those who have abundant life. The Messiah comes with celebration. The one who comes uh, to deliver his people, it comes with celebration. The Messiah is here. So let's explore the announcement that the Messiah is here and how it plays itself out in these verses. I want you to see two things. And the first thing Um, we've already alluded to. The first thing is this, that Jesus celebrates in the ordinary things. Jesus celebrates in the ordinary things. This is really important for us to see in this text. I mentioned a moment ago, but a wedding is a common event. Now, weddings are important. They're incredibly important events, and every wedding is special, but they happen really often. It is ordinary. It's not uncommon to go to, you'll probably get a handful of invites this summer 
to, to weddings. And so, so far in John's gospel, uh, Jesus has called several men uh, to follow him. But all of these have been like private one-on-one settings or just, just a few people. But when we get here in chapter 2, all of a sudden, Jesus is going public. There's a, there's a much larger crowd here at this wedding. This whole town is probably present during this celebration, this seven-day celebration. Jesus is doing something big in a, in a crowd for the first time. And Jesus is about to take action here that would say loud and clear, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is present. If you remember back to John chapter 1 in those first 18 verses, which seemed like an eternity ago, but John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 with this rich, theological, dense section that's communicating all of these truths about who Jesus is, that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus has lived in existence with in perfect, in perfect relationship with his heavenly father from eternity past. And then, but then also that Jesus is God himself. And there are all of these very key uh, theological truths about who Jesus is contained in those first 18 verses. And all of those truths seem really high and really important, and they are. But then when we get to chapter 2, Jesus does something ordinary. He goes to a wedding. Jesus was not too busy or too important to be part of the celebrations of life, no matter how ordinary they were. Jesus attended a wedding. We learn here that marriage matters. We can glean this from this passage, that marriage matters and that marriage mattered to Jesus. If you're married, marriage may seem just like this state of things. If you're 10 years in or 20 years in or 50 years in, it may just seem like the state of things for you. But Jesus celebrates the joining of a husband and a wife in marriage in Cana. And Jesus takes time to celebrate this simple union. When we think about Jesus caring about marriage, we have to realize that Jesus cared about this marriage. And he cares about your marriage. He cares about your relationship with your spouse. But sometimes when we talk about Jesus caring about our marriage, we talk about oughts and shoulds, right? We talk about like, well, Jesus cares about our marriage in the fact that we ought to live this way or we should do this thing or that, right? Like, it's just a bunch of like finger waving. Like, oh, Jesus doesn't approve of that. But that's not the way that, I'm, that we should think about through this text. Of course, there are, Jesus cares about the definition of marriage between a man and a woman, the way that God intended it. Of course, Jesus cares about you keeping him at the center and making godliness the aim of your marriage. But also, he cares about your moments together. He cares about your heart. He cares about how you feel and how you interact with each other. He cares about all of that. Jesus cares about the moment that you go to bed and say goodnight and turn the light off. Jesus cares about the moment you wake up and then when you make your your spouse coffee in the morning. Jesus cares about the simple conversations surrounding just what happened during your day. Jesus cares, the truth that kind of comes over the top of this, 
is that Jesus cares to be involved in the ordinary moments of your life. He, he cares to be involved in the ordinary moments of your life. We talk about Jesus being king and ruling and reigning over everything, and that's absolutely true. But Jesus cares to have intimate relationship with you. He cares about your relationships. He cares about your small moments that you think maybe are insignificant. You're eating, you're drinking, your marriage, your parenting, your grandparenting, your home improvement projects. You're resting. Sometimes Christians, we, we do this thing where we make a big deal just about the big deals. Right? We, we, we want things to be big and explosive. But in those moments when we think about that, are we diminishing the small, quiet, ordinary moments? I know I've said this before, but I, I believe it with all of my heart. Um, we should not treat mealtime as an inconvenience. We should not treat our eating as just to shove something down my throat to, to gain energy to do the next task. Jesus didn't. The portrait of Jesus is that he feasted and he celebrated. He took time around the table to uh, grow in intimacy with his disciples. Don't downplay the significance of those seemingly inconsequential moments. Mealtime is one of them. As I think about this, as I thought about these concepts this week and, and just how Jesus cares to be involved in the ordinary moments of my life, I think I was convicted um, because I have to admit, Rebecca is pregnant with our sixth, which is amazing. Um, but as time has gone on, um, I pregnancy one, I was super involved. It was just like, boom, right out of the gate. I was like, let's rearrange the whole apartment. We just found out we were pregnant. Um, everything changed immediately and we started reorganizing. And now my question is like, well, how long can I put off building that thing that we absolutely need to have before the baby comes? And not, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to make this sound bad, but well, maybe I do. Maybe you should just know a, a couple weeks ago. I, well, it's been more than a couple now, if my math is right. But the, uh, I, I mentioned that Rebecca was 26 weeks pregnant. And she said, no, I'm 28 weeks pregnant. And I, and I got to thinking, especially as I was preparing for this, like, what, why? Like, I was so on top of things and so present. And yeah, things change when you have about five little kids running around. And, like, and I thought to myself, is it novel? It's not, it's not about not caring about these things, but... I needed to be reminded that Jesus cares about simple moments. Je Jesus cares about the fact that my, Jesus is just like, I don't know, it's like 26 weeks or something like that, right? No, Jesus cares about the, the, the amount of time that Rebecca has remaining in her pregnancy. She, he cares about the life in the womb. He cares about, he cares about milestones in the pregnancy. He cares about my wife and I connecting over small things, waiting for the baby to arrive. And I think in that moment I realized, and, and I think that, I think many of us do this, 
And sometimes we struggle to believe that Jesus cares about these things. Do you, do you consider that many moments throughout your day are inconsequential? Again, friends, no, no moment in your life is inconsequential. No moment is without meaning. We should invest wholeheartedly in every moment knowing that Jesus cares deeply about everything. We should be then ready to celebrate in the ordinary. I'm convinced that many Christians are unwilling to follow Jesus more closely because they think they'll have to give up a bunch of stuff. But it's actually the reverse. Christians have a corner on the celebration market. If you, if you are in Christ, you've been given abundant life. What, what more do you have, what more reason do you have to celebrate than those who are outside of Christ? Jesus celebrated openly. You have infinitely more reason to celebrate in the most ordinary of moments. What does it mean to celebrate like Jesus? Celebrating like Jesus increases the significance of the celebration. It increases the significance of your food and drink because it comes from a, a God who cares so deeply for you that he won't let you go hungry. It increases the significance. The world celebrates to dull pain. What's coming in the office tomorrow? What, what is that difficult conversation I have to have with a family member or a friend or a coworker? My body just doesn't work the way that I want to do it. We go to food and drink to suppress those things. But Jesus says, I care. And in those moments, the significance of our celebration is increased because he is present there. When you have friends and family over, your celebration doesn't begin when the guests arrive or when they go home. Your celebration extends into the preparation. Your celebration extends into the cleanup and the rest time that follows. Jesus celebrating at a wedding should compel us to follow him. Because abundant life is a celebration in the ordinary. You want to have abundant life? It's not just about getting more stuff. It's about seeing what you have as, as all from God. And an extension to those ordinary moments. Because Jesus gives us abundance in the ordinary. It doesn't just mean do whatever you want, but it does mean doing it like he would do it. And when we do, when we celebrate the way that Jesus celebrates, it leads to more joyful celebrations overflowing with happiness. J.C. Ryle writes, Let us take care that we always go to feasts in the spirit of our divine master. And that's like grumpy, like finger-waving. That's ready to, ready to celebrate with abundant life. So, uh, take the spirit of your divine master to your Super Bowl party tonight. Jesus cares about your Super Bowl party. <laughs> he'll, he'll be there. So that's the first thing. Jesus takes time to celebrate in the ordinary. But the second thing we see in this text is that Jesus brings about the extraordinary. Or he brings about extraordinary things, giving us cause to celebrate. When it becomes apparent here in the text that uh, there was no more wine. 
Jesus' mom comes to him and says, they have no wine. To run out of wine or anything at a celebration like this would have reflected very poorly on the groom. It would have been dishonorable. And if Mary was related to this family in some way, she would have probably wanted to save their reputation. And so she asks Jesus. She comes, I know Jesus can do something about this. Jesus' response may seem strange. He says, what does this have to do with me? Don't get hung up on the woman part. Uh, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Don't get hung up there because that's just a, that's a formal address. It would be like saying ma'am. But he says, what does this have to do with me? Jesus is indicating to his mom that his relationship with her is changing. Something is changing here. His earthly public ministry was about to get underway. And that would represent a shift and his relationship with his, his family, his biological family. In, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus re- redefines his family as the ones who do the will of his father. When his mom and his brothers are looking for him, and his disciples say, like, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are looking for him. He says, who, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? The one who do the will of my father. These are my brothers and my mom. And so things are changing. And Jesus says, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And Jesus is looking forward to the cross primarily here. To fulfill all that he came to accomplish was not to be done right here. But he is, he is going to do something significant to show us where he intends to go. Jesus here is saying that He isn't going to perform a sign just so those people that he may be related to could save face in the the instance of wine that had run out. Rather, he's going to do what John says at the end of this text. He's going to uh, do it as a manifestation of his glory. He was going to do it because the Messiah had arrived, because he was there and he was present. And so Jesus turns the water into wine. And and of course, the wine is better than the wine that came before. It's like it would have been silly for him to turn it into wine that's worse than the earlier wine. Because he was communicating that the Messiah had arrived. The Messiah was here. And now the wine was flowing Freely, and things were had in abundance, including life. At an ordinary event, Jesus brought about an extraordinary thing, which gave cause to celebrate. Jesus didn't perform a magic trick here. It was by his will that six stone water jars filled with water turned into wine. But the celebration, again, wasn't about the wine. It was a, a revealing that he had come to deliver his people. It was the belief that was established in his followers at the end of verse 11. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And sometimes we take that phrase and make it really wooden, like we're just like, throw it out there for someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. We're like, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, man. But what is communicated here is that Jesus is the life of the party. Jesus is the one who makes this 
celebration all worth it? As we work to a conclusion, again, we learn here primarily that Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is here. Jesus brings deliverance to his people. Like John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, when you and I were outside of Christ, we had not made a profession of faith. When we had not believed that Jesus came to die for the forgiveness of our sins and turn from our sin to follow him. When that was us, when we were outside of him, we were enslaved to sin. There's not a whole lot of celebration that can happen when you are enslaved. Especially because sin is a cruel, unrelenting, oppressive master. Sin demanded that you serve it. You could not truly celebrate because you were dead. And dead people don't celebrate. But Jesus gives life and he gives it in abundance. He doesn't just put you on life support. He gives you life. Spiritual life. And through his death, this life comes to you. And he frees you from Sin. Free and alive people celebrate the freedom and the life they've been given. And that life extends into ordinary moments. So how could you celebrate this week? Again, that, that question may seem practical to you, but the, what reason do you have for celebrating this week? What reason do you have for, for celebrating the ordinary this week? And there's a practical component to it. You, you have ample reason to celebrate this week because Jesus has given you life. How can you celebrate the life you've been given in Jesus this week? Maybe it's a birthday or an anniversary or a big date on the calendar, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's a meal, just a meal with your spouse or with your family. Good food and drink that reminds you to taste and see that God is good. Or, or it's a meal that reminds you that God is sustaining you and preserving you right now in these very moments. May, maybe you're folding laundry. Laundry never ends in our home. And it probably doesn't in yours either. It gives you an opportunity to celebrate the kids God has given you or the spouse that God has blessed you with. Or just the fact that you would be reminded that, uh, that Jesus, that God cares for the flowers of the field. How much more does he care for you, his child? Jesus gives you life and brings celebration into the ordinary. Again, Christians sometimes we're just seen as like these grumpy, stick-in-the-mud people who don't have anything to celebrate, but we're always finger-waving at stuff going on around us. In a world that's flowing freely with negativity, Christians, we seem to be at like the top of the list of those angry people. We're shaking our fist. Can you believe what happened with such and such government, blah, blah, blah? But in a world that frees freely, I said this earlier, but in a world that flees fr freely flows with negativity, Christians have the corner on the celebration market. There's a wedding feast coming. There's a wedding feast coming. Your invitation is secure. 
and Jesus will be there, but this time, he'll be the groom. Every time you celebrate in the ordinary, you celebrate the extraordinary. Because this same will that turned water to wine in Cana and Galilee brought you from death to life. And for those who are alive, every celebration, no matter how big or how small or how seemingly inconsequential it is to you in the moment, every celebration anticipates the greatest celebration. Jesus is near, and when he comes back the second time, it will involve a big party. Why are, why are we grumpy? When the food is better than anything that you've ever eaten, when the drink touches your thirst in, no way, no, in, in a way that no other drink has ever touched your thirst, where joy overflows with shouts of praise. And it will go on for a time that we cannot even fathom. Can you imagine a week-long wedding? You're like, man, I get so bored. This will go on for a lot longer than a week. It will go on for eternity. The Apostle John who writes this gospel saw a vision at the end of at the end of your Bible in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's you and that's me. Our invitation, if we are in Christ, is secure. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let's pray.